This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society. From politics to pop culture and beyond. I always know how good the guest is going to be when they get psyched by that intro. And today, good faith fam, <laughs> I, I genuinely don't think I've ever been more excited about a guest. Like, this is probably a max for the show so far. I'm not saying we'll see where the show goes, but this is a max. We have with us a legendary <laughs> producer, writer, performer in hip-hop, gospel, R&B. He's the founder of My Block Records, multiple Grammy Award winning. Suffice it to say, he's won more Grammys than I have. Uh, he's written and produced with <laughs> with Kanye, <laughs> Mary Mary, Missy Elliott, Alicia Keys. Go down the line. So many more. He's the man, the myth, the legend. Warren Campbell is here. And we're going to talk about music, faith, culture, and so much more. But first, let's set this up. Okay. <clears throat> so we're ready to start talking about the last of the books of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. And it's an amazing book. Mm. Like if, you know, you all out there haven't read it, really one of my favorites in the Bible. But what most people don't know is that the books of Moses actually all have ancient Hebrew names that are very different than the English names. And these names are so important because they tell us something essential about the character of the book that we wouldn't know just from reading the English. And this is why finding ways to encounter the Hebrew language is so important. Okay, so the Hebrew name for the book of Deuteronomy is Devarim, which means words. As in the very first verse of the book, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel, right? Just as they're about to cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Now, here's why that name, Devarim, is so significant. After God freed the Israelites from Egypt. So instead of taking them right to the Holy Land, he first takes them into a desert where they stay for 40 years, just learning everything they need to know. It's where they get the Ten Commandments, where they receive the law at Sinai. It's where all the books of Moses get written. It all takes place in a desert, in a wilderness, where there's no one but them and God. It's where they step outside of history to recover from the horrors of slavery and also prepare themselves to become the people of the Bible. And Deuteronomy... Well, that book's going to be the last thing that God says to the Israelites right before they step back into history, before history begins again. And so right at this pivotal moment, not just for the Israelites, but given the importance of the Bible for the world, right at this moment is when God gives them their superpower. And their superpower is divarim, it's words. Because here's the thing, the Israelites' future and the human future in general isn't going to just be linear. It's not going to just go up and up and keep getting better and better every year. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be oppression. I mean, just next week, the, you know, my community, the Jewish community is going to fast for 24 hours to mourn and commemorate the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple thousands of years ago. This is the fast of the fifth month that Zechariah talks about. And from that moment of destruction on for the next 2000 years, there've been times where we've had everything Everything taken from us, our livelihoods, our land, our government, even our own bodies. But there's one thing no one has ever nor will ever be able to take away from us or from any people that believes in this. And that's our words, both the word that God gave to us and the words we speak to each other to encourage, to enlighten us, to lift us up. Because there's a power in words. They're the most ephemeral thing in the world, literally just fleeting air. But they can last longer than any castle, any prison, any world wonder any great empire, the Roman Colosseum 
Once one of the grandest buildings in the world, built by the mightiest empire ever known, it's now just a relic of a ruined civilization. It's a nice image to put on a postcard. But the words that the Roman Empire tried to stamp out, the words of prophets who spoke with that still soft voice, well, those words, the words of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those words, they echo today louder than they ever have. So what kind of power can words, whether our own words or the word, have today? Whether it's in American society or globally, in pop culture, in music, in sports, we have a greater influence to spread our words across the globe than we've ever had at any point in the history of humanity. So how can we make a difference? And how, how do we see what kind of power words have? And so to unpack all of this, I knew I needed to bring on someone who's a master of words, who's made words, whether lyrics or the words of scripture, his whole life. He's the legendary, multi-Grammy-winning producer, writer, performer, Warren Campbell. Warren, thank you so much for being here. Wow. Man, what an introduction. I'm like looking around for somebody else. <laughs> Warren, I am wow. beyond psyched that you're here. Um, oh, man. Thank you for having me, Rabbi. I want to get into some of life's deepest questions with you. But first, I want to set the stage for the listeners. So you take two trajectories in life. You become an absolute legend in the music industry. You're working with the biggest hip-hop and R&B artists in the world. And you also go on to become a pastor out in L.A., right? And you're not doing one after the other. You're doing both of these things simultaneously. So how does this happen? What is it about your background, your experiences that made that possible? Well, first, I'd like to give a shout-out to my, my pastor, Bishop Kenneth Omer. Love him. Who, yeah, he's an amazing guy. And when we were talking about this transition from me being a, an, an, a musician in his church, then a minister, and then him ordaining me pastor, uh, because he was a musician before he started became a pastor. I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he was the minister of music at his church, uh, the Mount Moriah Baptist Church here in L.A., back in the 1970 or whatever. And he told me that then the preachers that were, you know, older than him and the people, people that he sort of looked up to told him, you have to now stop the music. If you're going to preach, you can't do the music. You got to let it go. So he just stopped playing and he just wished he never did. So he said, listen, I want you to talk to some people who have transitioned from music to ministry to pastoring and, you know, whether they were failed at it or, or you know, so he prepared me for that. He let me know you don't have to stop. You could do you could do both. So, as a matter of fact, my music career uh, sort of correlates with what I do, because I'm used to dealing with so many different personalities and deadlines and having to you know uh, have a, you know a lot of pressure situations. Pastoring is no different. Pastoring and ministry itself means people. So you know dealing with all these people, different personalities in my church. I'm well prepared, and uh, and how I knew I was called to to preach and called to minister the word of God was the same as how I knew I was called to write songs. Because in this conversation alone, my songwriting brain doesn't stop. So you, you words you say when you brought up Deuteronomy, I thought about Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 through 14, the blessings, and, and I immediately I start I'm thinking of melodies and songs. Ugh. Same thing with with preaching. I would read a billboard, you know. Uh, got milk or whatever it is and automatically a sermon would download just like a song <laughs> i love it <laughs> and so i knew i like okay i have to do something with this so um i think i'm i'm showing up as me wherever i go you know whether i'm preaching whether i'm producing 
I'm like a coach. So I'm, I'm the same guy, kind of doing the same thing, but for different reasons, if, if you can put it that way. In one essence, I'm doing something with music. The other, the other side, I'm doing something with, you know, teaching people and helping people through the Word of God. Either way, I'm playing instruments, you know, either way. That's amazing. I have so many questions. There's so many ways we could go. I, we got to pick one, but we'll hit all of them. Okay. So <laughs> I, I want to talk about hip hop. I want to talk about some stuff that you've produced. I want to talk about creativity in general. But before that, I want to ask one more question, kind of from 30,000 feet up, just about music in general. So if you... If you want to tell the story of popular music, you know, globally in the last century, you really can't without telling the story of American pop music. And if you want to tell the story of American pop music, well, that story begins and ends with the black American community. There's jazz, blues, gospel, the origins of rock and roll, Motown, R&B, hip hop. And I'll tell you as a as a Jewish American, so part of a community where we feel the culture has a lot to learn from our traditions and our values, I'm just like in awe of this kind of cultural achievement. So first of all, how do you understand the history, the roots of that achievement? What made it possible? And how could another community like my own, one that I think also has great traditions and culture, how can we learn from the black community about how to be a positive influence like that? Well, first of all, you, you have to know that where things come from, you know, um, what I've been told and what I've learned through, you know, my father and my grandfather, which I was blessed to live in the house with both of them growing up. Uh, my grandfather was heavy into jazz, but he was also a preacher. So was my father. And uh, my grandfather would tell me all these stories about, you know, Africa and, you know, and how in Africa, that's where we learned the song and we had the African rhythms and, and all those things. And the, the song, the songs were songs of joy, right? Because we were kings and we were, we were creative. Like, you know, and he would tell me things like, you know, the, the first man on, on the planet came from Africa, you know, and when God created that man, Adam, he created him like himself in his own image. And he says, God is the, the ultimate creator. I love that. If you read Genesis, you know, and you look at how he created it, he, if you thought about that in terms of, a, if you put Michael Jackson on the stage and put Genesis one through three in the backdrop, let there be like, boom, it was, that's, that's <laughs> the stars are shining and things are popping. It's, it's like creativity, like, like nobody's ever seen. You know what I mean? Uh, water shooting up and mountains being formed. It's like this, it's so creative. And if you put yourself in that place as if you were watching a show, you know, God is the ultimate creative person. When he made us, the more we create, the more we are like him. So he says, man, that comes from Africa. Now, the song changed. Once we were oppressed in, in slavery, we still had the song. But now the song's out of pain. And, and it turned from these happy, joyous rhythms to these moanings and these groanings in the cotton fields and, and with the whips on the back, with the lashes. But the song was the still, in, it was still integral, right? And so uh, it, in that song, that's where we get the blues from and the moanings of, you know, uh, the, the, the five notes, the pentatonic scale, you know what I mean? Uh, and we, we use those five notes uh, in the pentatonic scale to do all our blues and the rhythm and, and soul and, and all that kind of stuff comes from that place and it just continued to continue and it morphed into, you know, now, if you look at it now, you know, it's it's a mixture of oppression and freedom because we're not oppressed in that way anymore. We are, uh, we still have PTSD, which is post-traumatic slave disorder, right? 
And, um, you know, we are still dealing with it in, in mental ways. So we're not physically enslaved, but some of us are mentally enslaved, and it comes out in our music as well. So there's a rich tradition of, you know, this up and down thing with our music that goes happy to sad, happy to sad, happy to sad. And, you know, and so now we've got it, we have it in, in categories. Now the gospel is happy. Hip-hop can be sad. You know what I'm saying? Parts of R&B can be happy. Parts of R&B can be sad. So it's just wow. it just goes back and forth in that way. And uh, I, I know that's a very long answer. <laughs> no, that's that's like perfect. And I'll tell you, you mentioned your grandfather. I'll raise you my grandfather. So my, my, my grandfather is my teacher. I've mentioned him on the pod many, many times. I've been Norman yeah. Lamb of Blessed Memory. So he has a wonderful essay. The, it's actually called The Religious Implications of Extraterrestrial Life. It's an awesome awesome essay it is so good and it's really it really is about the value of human life the the power of the human spirit and the uniqueness of humanity but one of the things he talks about is the divine image and he he teaches something similar to your grandfather which he says at the time that the bible tells us that man is endowed with the image of its creator we only know three things about god at that point in the bible there are only three things we know he cares about humanity he makes moral judgments, right? He says, this is good. This is this is very good. And he creates. So what it means to be created in the divine image is that God wants us to be creators, like you were saying. And you just talked about how that plays out in, in an artistic sense, right? In the creative process. But from a technological creativity standpoint, here's my question. I think it's insufficiently appreciated how before really anything else, hip hop is a technological revolution, right? And sound manipulation, right? Like yeah. Grandmaster Flash and figuring out how, how to manipulate the breaks, right? So as someone who's mastered not just being at the front of the stage, which you have, but also being behind the dials and producing, how do you think about the technologically revolutionary parts of music production? Like what does it take to make great music, not just time, timelessly, but today? I think if you have an open mind towards uh, what constitutes an instrument, then you have uh, a chance at being a master of hip hop because we, in, in line with the African-American tradition, we've taken the scraps. Like, you know, if you go back to the food we were made to eat, like, you know, we call it soul food now, but then it was like, you're gonna just take this, the, the intestines of this pig and you just do, make do with that. And we called it chitterlings. Like I've never eaten them, but you know, Pastor Fisher, our mutual friend, told me that uh, the the we were talking about chitlins. He told me that it came out that the equivalent of chitlins in the Jewish community is like gefilte fish. It's like oh. it's like you take all the garbage <laughs> pieces of fish and just put it together because we couldn't afford anything else, right? <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I mean, like my grandfather, man, was on his deathbed with cancer and like yelling at me to go to the store and buy pig feet. I'm like, pig feet? Why do you want this? Like, what? It's the scraps that they were given. Hip hop was made from the scraps. There's records and there's just random sounds like, you know, on the street. You know, I, I have a little field recorder, right? And I record things on the street all the time. Cars going by, dogs barking, you know, somebody jumping in the pool. I'm able to manipulate that sound and turn it into something else. And I incorporate that into beats. So I'll take like, when you said, wow, I'll make it wow, 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 wow. You know, and I'll put up, you know, something under it. It's about taking anything around you and using it. And so uh, when we were kids, all we had, you know, were the things in our homes. And the most interesting thing to me uh, when I was a kid was my father's records. And he would go to work and he had he had a bass guitar in the corner. 
and he had this record player with all these weird records, but they were only gospel records, right? And there was like the Hawkins, the Wyans, Rance Allen group, and then there was one uh, record that was blue with a white drawing of Jesus on it, and on the back there was a picture of uh, a white lady and a white guy, and, and he never played this record. I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> he never played. He never played it. So I decided one day I'm going to play this record. It was like Christian music, but it was like folk music. But it intrigued me. I'm like, oh man. So when I got old enough, like 15, 16, I got my first sampler. My dad scraped and scraped and bought me the sampler. Right. I went to that record, and I made so many off this one record. I've made so much music <laughs> off of this one record. And but it was basically the, the technology allowed me to take something that my father discarded. You know what I mean? And you know, sample it and d distort it and turn it into something you wouldn't even recognize. The stone the builder refused. That's it. The stone the builder rejected. That's it. And you know, anything from a, I mean, from a can to a, you know, to all these discarded items, and you take that and you import that into a box that is, you know, technology. You know, a sampler that you could distort the images and or the, the the audio images, and you know, and it creates this new sound that nobody's ever heard before. It's so exciting. When I started, there were no computers in the studio. There was wow. zero. There was no computers. There was tape machines and drum machines and turntables. That's all we had, you know. And um, and now you can do all that stuff in a box. Doesn't sound quite the same, but you know, doesn't matter how far we go in technology in terms of how fast we're able to do it or whatever. You still have to go through the paces. You still have to select the right piece of material you're going to work with. If you're a just like a, a guy that makes suits, you got to, or, or a clothing a piece, person that sews, you know, you got to select the right piece of material uh, to to get the outcome you really want. And so, you know, if I'm going to sample this little bottle of blessed oil, right? I'm going to, oh yeah, I'll take that. This is a good material here, right? I'll take that and turn that into so many different things, you know, through technology. So, I mean, it's it's wonderful what we're able to do, you know, that, my uncles who were producers, they couldn't do none of this stuff. They just, they didn't have the technology to do it. So I'm blessed to be born in the era that I'm born in, 1975. Hey, <laughs> well, actually that's exactly where I want to go. So you've been around the game for, I mean, for, for a really long time. I've talked about this in the pod, like in the early, early, early days, but haven't talked about it since then. When I think about something like hip hop, I really think about the stories early on in Genesis, right? Someone like Abraham and Sarah, where on the one hand, these are deeply countercultural figures. They're standing up to a dominant imperial traditional way of living and saying, we actually reject the paganism in this era and we're standing up for universal human dignity and so on. So they're these deeply countercultural figures. And at the same time, in the context of the Bible, they're the cornerstone of everything. They're as mainstream as it gets. Yeah. And when you think about the trajectory that hip hop takes culturally, so it's this counter cult, deeply countercultural force. And then eventually, actually pretty quickly, it goes from this kind of cultural underdog to the absolute center of the cultural mainstream. And if you want to understand that transition, the kind of transition you see early on in Genesis, this is one of the clearest, most vivid analogs you could think of. So A, as someone who's been there for so long in this industry, what's that transition like? Does anything get lost when you move from counterculture to the mainstream? Is it important to keep that countercultural spirit alive? And how do you do that? Like, what is this transition like? You know, it's twofold. It's it's great 
to be recognized. It's great to be held in, in, held in the mainstream as the, you know, the juggernaut or the thing that everybody wants to be and become and the thing that everybody wants to emulate. But at the same time, when when it gets to the masses, we lose quality a lot of times. But if you think about anything that's mass produced, uh, it, it was once this special thing. But once, like my parents always complain. I just had this conversation with my mom and dad because they complain about everything that they eat now. Like whether it's a, <laughs> I know that game. <laughs> they change this. This used to be so good when I. And, you see, my dad says back in when I was a kid, McDonald's was a real hamburger. It was a big patty. It was a big, what is this? This is not, this is not McDonald's, you know? And so, because it's mass produced, that, you know, you got to do it cheaper. You got to do it faster. See, that's why we Jews don't eat McDonald's. See? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't touch, we don't touch the stuff. But exactly. I'm just saying, but he, uh, we were talking about cereal, like, you know, certain cereal. He was like, this used to be, they, they, I don't know what they did to it. It doesn't taste the same, you know? But anything that becomes wanted by the masses and now you have to feed that 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 you have to supply that demand you know um if you want to grow financially uh in your company to get bigger as a you know a label whatever you got to do it faster which means you got to do it cheaper which means you know now when it will take like say like a dr dre right dr dre does his first album in 1992 the chronic right it's a massive success it's just gorgeous, revolutionizes the way we think about sound, like sonically, it's insane. Everything, everything is just changed. So you would think because of the success of that, um, and he would go, okay, we got to get this follow-up going because, you know, no, Dr. Dre doesn't put out another album. That's 1992. He does not put out another album, which is the sequel, Chronic 2001, until 2001. <laughs> it's nuts. But he's working on it the entire time. The entire time, right? Uh, and so when you're talking about, and, and, and by the way, both things are held as two of the pinnacle projects forever, right? And so when you go to the masses and you have this need to mass produce, you lose a lot of that quality that, that a guy like Dr. Dre insists on you know, implementing because he's like, I'm not gonna rush. I don't care what you say uh, because I've made so much money on the last project, I don't have to rush. I'm not interested. So at some point, you have to become uninterested in money. You have to say, okay, yeah, I've made enough money to afford me the, the, the opportunity to sit here and make this art and make it the best I can make it and not worry about hurrying up to make more money. That's greed. This album, this last project has made me rich beyond my wildest dreams. My children's children will be blessed because of this last project. I don't need to overdo it and make instead of making $100 million, I need to make, uh, make $3 billion, you know. No, let me sit here and just make the best possible. If it takes me seven years, guess what? When it comes out, maybe I'll get to that three billion. But, you know, and he did, and he did beats and he did all this other stuff. But it's like, no, I'm going to sit here and take my time, put it in the slow cooker, let it simmer. And so when you get to the masses and, and all these the accolades and hip hop is the, is the center of everything, we've lost a lot of quality, a lot of quality. And now it's mostly celebrated mediocrity. Wow. You know what that makes me think of? So I love it and I appreciate where it's coming from, but there's like this trend that's been like a trend on social media forever, like hashtag blessed. And I like the spirit of it. I get where it's coming from. But when you look at the way that blessing appears in the Bible, particularly in a covenantal sense, Abraham isn't told you will be blessed. He's told you will be a blessing. Brother, I call. 
Yeah. So you're talking about, listen, you make a ton of money from the chronic. Is that, is that a blessing for you or does that allow you to now be a blessing for others by making something great? I think that's amazing. So you were there really also from the beginning with Kanye, I believe. And you've, you know, you've won Grammys along with Kanye. And one of the things that I think is crazy and it's, it's me, it's not underappreciated in the world of hip hop, but I think more broadly speaking, it's underappreciated how insane it is that when he drops this massive first album, College Dropout, this really, I mean, there's a song called Jesus Walks On It, which is like this massive like hit, but it's like a faith-driven song. And like people are like bumping to it. Like how did the thought process go about like, yeah, we should put this out. It'll be a mainstream hit, you know? You know, I remember, so on College Dropout, I, I didn't work on that album, but I was around Kanye at the time. As a matter of fact, Def Jam, the label in New York, I used, I lived across the street on 50th and 8th. And so uh, when I was starting my label on my block, me and a guy named Jaha Johnson, who worked at Def Jam. Friend of the pod, we love Jaha. Me and Jaha started my block together. It was wow. our label together, but we started it in his office at Def Jam while he was working at Def Jam. So I would come across the street, sit in his office at Def Jam, and a lot of times there was a barber that would come in Kanye's office and like cut some of the artist's hair. Kanye would come in and get his hair cut, right? I remember being in Jaha's office, me, him, and Kanye debating, going back and forth, round and round about whether or not Jesus Walks should be a single. Now, Kanye had two mixtapes before the College Dropout album. One was called Get Well, Kanye, and one was called I'm Good. On both of those albums are songs that are actually on the College Dropout album. One of them is Jesus Walks. So I was like, no, man, you should put out uh, When It All Falls Down with the Lauryn Hill sample. He's like, that's the one. He's like, nah, I don't know if I should do that first. I said, man, Jesus walks. I don't know if you want to do it. Because I, and me, the Christian guy in the room, I just didn't think it would fly because I thought there would be some sort of revolt, you know, against what that stood for in the message. I thought maybe it would, people would think it was sacrilegious or because, you know, the, the content of the rest of the album wouldn't match that. But he went out and put Jesus walks out anyway because that's what he really wanted to do. And then he put out When It All Falls Down after that. But And I was right and he was right because it was a massive hit. But in the church world, which is a much smaller, you know, a much smaller group of people, there was this big revolt. I remember the, the, the Gospel Music Awards that happens every year called the Stellar Awards, like the Gospel Grammys, right? They were protesting because they were trying to nominate Jesus Walks as, you know, a, a Gospel Song of the Year or whatever. And there were artists protesting, doing interviews like this. We have to protect our gospel and da 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 da. And Kanye was like, "Man, why do they hate me so much?" He said, "I didn't get in this. I'm not a gospel artist. I just did a song. You know, like <laughs> I didn't ask to come down to that. I didn't ask to be nominated or anything. Like, I didn't. I didn't submit myself to be nominated. Like you know. So, but it was it was this whole thing. I was like, wow. So because as, as a matter of fact, I, I was trying to get him to do a song with Mary Mary. And because of the backlash, he was like, man, I don't even want to do it. Like, those people hate me over there. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, it was just this whole thing where they just did not want him to be a part of, of that. But I think his faith ultimately won out. That's why he's doing what he's doing now. So... If you think about where faith takes a place in art in general, so one thing, I mean, to go back to my grandfather for a second also, 
he devoted so much of his intellectual life to developing a concept called Torah Umada, which is this idea of using our great faith traditions, particularly the Bible and, and Jewish tradition, to sanctify everything in the world around us and then drawing the best from the world around us to enrich our religious lives. And it's a beautiful way of looking at the world. But what it always struck me as articulating was the importance of bringing your values and your excellence to everything that you do. And so I sometimes find it like strange, not strange, but but noteworthy when you'll see like an artist referred to as like a Christian artist, right? Because in the wider world of achievement, like you wouldn't see someone referred to as like a Jewish physicist or like a Christian occupational therapist, right? right? You just be excellent at what you do and you would, and if you're doing it in a way that's authentic, you're bringing your values into everything that you do. So someone who's, who knows people and has been on both sides of that question, how do you think about the way that faith and values and tradition and community and inspiration come into music, particularly at the highest possible levels, which is where you're working? Well, I, I think that, you know, faith influences everything. And if you can get over the hurdle of coming out of a church, from a church that basically frowns upon doing anything secular. Oh, interesting. Because in the church, we are the most unfair to the musician or the creatives. In the church, we say, okay, you musician, you singer, you can sing in church, but you cannot sing any other kind of music. Otherwise, you're going to hell. But we don't tell the dentist in our congregation that you only better work on Christian teeth. Right. <laughs> My wife's a dentist. She'd be in trouble. <laughs> right, right. Only, Jew yeah. only Jewish teeth. There are only so many. <laughs> you, you'll be out of business. You know, I'm like, I, as, as a musician, I'd be out of business if I only did gospel the way I see it. There, now, there are some that only do gospel, and mostly because that is the the pressure that's been put on them over the years. This is not just some new thing. This has been, I mean, for years and years, there's, a, there's an oppression uh, of the creator to say, you better not do secular. So once you get out of that, then you realize that what you do, literally, and your faith influences and informs everything that you do. And literally everything. So, I mean, you know, as a kid, being at Death Row Records, I didn't know why I was in the room then. I do now, but at the time, you know, when I was 17, 18, and there would be some kind of crazy occurrence, somebody got shot or whatever, and, and they would say, they would call, they called me Baby Warren back then. <laughs> somebody called Baby Warren, he knows how to pray. Wow. And I was like, okay, I'm not a minister, but yeah, I do know how to pray. I say my prayers, my, I say grace, okay. <laughs> I'll pray, you know, I come from church. But I was looked at as the only guy in the room that knew how to do that that knew how to contact God and, 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 and bring all our griefs and our grievances to God on, 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 I can talk to God on your behalf. I was the only guy in the room that they thought was, you know, had that ability, which, which is sad because I'm like, all you guys have that ability. That's what I thought. But according to them, because I do secular music, I'm a rapper, I smoke weed, uh, you know, all this stuff I'm into, I can't talk to God. And so what I learned was, through my faith and through, and through you know the music that I do in the rooms that I'm allowed to go in, I'm able to show people that we all have access. God is no respected person. It's all about the heart. So, you know that that has been a, the, the hugest benefit I think. You know when it comes to me ministering to people and knowing that I'm in a room for a certain reason to share my faith. I think the music is and what I do as a creative draws people in. But you know 
I'm always ultimately able to say, hey, man, like there's people in this industry, there's so much, you know, craziness. They have so many issues and things that happen. I'm able to be there to say, man, you know, I, it's okay. I can talk to them. I can share my faith. I can share the word of God with them and lead them with some word. Like you said, that 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 will impact them forever. And I never know till sometimes years later, they come back to me, man, I was, I was walking into my barber's house about three months ago. And there was a lady that was coming out of the parking lot. And she says, hey, you're the preacher. You prayed for me. Uh, do you remember? I was like, no. She said, my, I just lost my mom. You were right here on the street, you prayed for me and I felt better. And she was like, thank you. I was like, I had no clue. I don't remember her at all. Wow. But that's the way, if we move that way, you know, that's without, without a thought, you know, if I'm in the studio, if I'm in the street, I show up as me every time. Wow. That's a really good transition point because I want to talk about leadership, being there, being the right person for the right time. I have a whole theory on this, but I want to hear yours first, which is I think there are two subcultures in American life that take Moses, the biblical Moses, more seriously than anybody else. First is the Jewish community. So a friend of mine who who, who isn't Jewish once said, he's like, I sometimes feel like when non-Jews talk with the Jewish community, they're like, yeah, to be Jewish, you just got to let Moses into your life, you know, so like, yeah. which is not, which is not it. But, you know, we obviously Moses is really, really important to us. And the other community is the black community in America. And when I kind of think about two communities for even that take the story of the Exodus most seriously. It's the Jewish community and the black American community. So, you know, I can't speak for the whole Jewish community, but as someone who kind of grew up in that world, I feel like I have a good sense about where Moses or how Moses makes his way into my thinking about the world. But someone who's coming from, grew up in, and is a leader in the black American community, how do you think about Moses as a character, as an inspiration, as a leader? How do you think about that? Well, first of all, you know, how I was introduced to Moses, again, my grandfather, when I was uh, nine or 10, he bought me and my sister a video, a movie called The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. <laughs> love, by the way, love it. So good. I just I just introduced it about three months ago to my wife and my, my sister-in-law. Best like nine hours ever spent, because it's a long movie. Oh. And listen, <laughs> we watched it all the time. Oh, that's so good. I watched that thing, like, like literally, I know it by heart. And I know it by heart. Now, now I've, you know, come to know that some of that stuff is not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it did give me an intro into who Moses was. And it made me think about, like, Moses has always been type of, like, how you guys, you know, Moses is, is the Jewish community's guy. Martin Luther King is our guy. Like, right. you know, that's just what we, <laughs> he, he, he became sort of that kind of figure to me. Like a like a type of Martin Luther King, like you know, let my people go, we shall overcome. You know, uh, I have a dream type type of person, and I always, as a kid, felt bad for Moses. I'm like, man, this guy did all this stuff and didn't get to go into the promised land. Yeah, it's always that's always like my, wow, man, God, why didn't you just let him? My grandfather said, well, he let him see it, but he couldn't go in it. I said, really? You let him see it? According to the movie, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but like, um, and I would think like, man, what a, it's like a tease. It's like a, oh my God. Like the thing that I fought for so hard that I gave up the life in the palace for, 
And I'm out in the desert. And I create this whole new life. And I go into the mountain and get empowered. I see a, see a burning bush. I'm doing all these things. My, my rod is turning into snakes and the, the frogs and the pestilence and the blood on the doorpost and all that, 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 that. And I can't go in. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that that Moses is like one of my favorite characters. Even when I when I talk about Moses in that story, I, I, I teach a sermon called Thank God for the Detour. And I talk about when Moses is is leading the people one way and God told him to to take a pretty much a very long detour because they're going to go to the land of the Philistines. And I said, you know, they're not prepared to fight yet. They're just, I said, they're, they're not in any any fighting position. Like if they go in the land of the Philistines now, they're going to get killed, right? So he gives them this detour, this long detour, and that lands them right in front of the Red Sea. I said, why the Red Sea? I said, because God performs. And this is where he's getting ready to perform one of the greatest miracles of the Old Testament, The you know, the whole thing. Like, and Moses is in the middle of all of that. Like Moses is Moses is like the Michael Jordan of the Bible to me. Yes, the goat. <laughs> He's the goat. Yeah, at least in the Old Testament, because you know Jesus comes. Uh-huh. But you know, I'm like, yo, like, how is he not re- re- revered and, and, and talked about as this? You know. I don't know. That's just my take on who Moses is. You know, he's he's the goat. He's he's the guy. Like you know, I don't think anybody has in the Old Testament uh, has seen or been a part of or or been a conduit of more miracles. You know than Moses. Wow. All right. We talked about the past, our roots, where we came from. Moses, the origins of music. Now we're looking forward to the future. So one thing, and we've kind of danced around it in this conversation, but it's something that's so apparent to anyone who's consuming pop culture is there's been this like revolution of how faith kind of shows up in the pop culture in America. So, you know, when mass culture is invented, faith, particularly in America, had gone through this transformation where it was just like old white guys like wagging their finger at people and saying, no, no, no. And that's never what faith had been for the last 2000 years. It was always punk rock. It was always subversive, always counterculture. And today you're starting to see a lot of that return, whether it's on, you know, on social media, like you see, you just see like so much cool stuff about faith on TikTok, on Snapchat, on Instagram, or at the highest levels of music, Kanye, Kendrick, Chance, Bieber down the line, you see it in sports, right? You see you see all the, you know, all the biggest stars on the planet, you know, you, lo- you, you know, you look at the last NBA finals, Steph Curry gets the, and you know, gets the finals MVP. First thing he does is thanks God. Andrew Wiggins gets interviewed on TV. First thing he does, thanks God. When you're looking at the future of how faith shows up in American culture, American society, first of all, are you optimistic, pessimistic? And where do you think the next stage is? That's a good question. Well, I mean, comes to faith, I'm always optimistic because faith to me will always be in play because people will always be doing people. Faith is an action word. You know what I mean? Faith is literally acting, especially faith in God. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. You know what I mean? Like you believe what he says and you act and you act that out. You move accordingly. So as long as there's action and people moving and doing things that they believe in, especially when you're talking about things that, that you believe in that other people don't believe in. You have a counter ad, a, a belief and adversity to, towards your beliefs or, you know, I, I want to do this, but there's all these other people that think I can't do it, but I have to have faith in myself or faith in what I know, what I'm doing. I think faith will always, faith in God in, in particular, will always play a, a huge role because I just believe every soul, 
has an innate or instinct to understand or know its maker. No matter what you read or what you believe, you could be a Buddhist or you could be a this or that and veer off and be like the inner man, the soul of the person. When I say the soul, I'm talking about the Bible spoken Jeremiah says before you were in your mother's womb, I knew, I knew you. you. Like not while you're in, before you got there. That means before your mother and father met, I knew you. How? Because you were a soul. You're mm. somebody he, he understood. Which means you, you, you're forever. That's why when you die, you're ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We go back to this body, this earth suit goes back to the dust. But the soul lives on. The soul always existed, right? So I think uh, in terms of that, the soul is always, whether it's in this confused body with the confused brain, the soul's like, no, it's always trying to get you to point towards something else. It's in there somewhere. So I think because of that, faith will always play a part there'd be always there, there will always be faith in god there will always be somebody trying to find out you know where god is in the moment i love it okay last question easy one who's an artist that maybe is not on everyone's radar yet that you're the most excited about now oh well um there's, oh, there's several of those <laughs> and and most of those artists for me are are gospel mm. yeah, because i think gospel artists are everywhere i mean aretha franklin the, the greatest voice of our time is a gospel artist you know what i'm saying her biggest album was gospel it's a great point you know what i mean by the way, her her cover of Elton John's Border song, right, Holy Moses. Yeah. It she takes it from like a mediocre pop song to one of the best pieces of music I've listened to. It's like unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and so there is a, a group that I'm working with. They're called the Walls Group out of Houston, Texas. Oh my God. They're amazing. And and nobody knows about them yet. But yet there's this other girl. She's from Oakland, California. And Nobody knows her. I just started working with her and doing things with her. Her name is, and let's catch her name. Her name is Lena Bird Miles. She has all the names. You know what I'm saying? She's such a huge talent. Like, even though nobody knows her yet, people are pulling her in these, uh, into these amazing opportunities. So, like, a DM, DMX, the rapper, he passes. Lena Miles gets tapped to sing at his funeral in front of the whole world. Like, wow. And she, like she's like, oh my god! They asked me to sing. She doesn't know DMX. She has no ties to him whatsoever. But Kanye's choir is going to sing, and the guy that runs the choir asked her to come sing with them and do a solo, right? And so we're watching the 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 funeral. I think it was at the Barclays Center, right? I'm in a studio watching it. I'm in the studio working with Killer Mike. I love it. Of course, like like as as one does. <laughs> Reminds me of two weeks ago when I was hanging with Killer Mike. Anyway, <laughs> so we're watching the funeral, and his, his a guy that works with Killer Mike is his A and R guy. His name is Cuz Cuz Lightyear is what they call him. <laughs> and so Cuz says, "Man, that girl is amazing." I said, "Oh man, that, that girl, she's my artist. She work. I work with her." He says, "What? What's her name?" I said, "Lena Bermouse." He was like, "Oh wow, she has all the great names." He calls me two days later and goes, hey, man, you think you can get the girl with three names to come sing? <laughs> come sing on Mike's album? I'm like, the girl with three names? Yeah, the girl that was at the, D the DMX girl. I said, oh, yeah, sure. So she comes and she sings on Killer Mike's album. Then she gets invited to, she's like, she's like Forrest Gump. She gets invited <laughs> to sing at the Oscars this year, right before Will Smith slaps Chris Rock. It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> It's either right before or right after. She's she's singing a solo right before that. And and nobody knows her yet. It's so crazy. And she's on her way out. She has an album dropping. Her name is Lena Burt Miles. She has an album dropping September the 9th. Wow. Listen, 
Folks, check it out. It's unbelievable. Guys, I mean, Warren Campbell, what else do I say? This is unbelievable. You are incredible. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, man. My grandfather, Rabbi Norman Lamb, made a wonderful observation in a sermon back in 1959 when he was actually just 31 years old. He said, it is only when a person exercises his spiritual qualities that his intellect serves the purpose of sanctifying man and elevating even his purely natural aspect. Every single one of us has been endowed with a unique set of skills and talents we can use to create goodness in the world. And we should look at the vast field of human endeavor and be amazed. Look at what humans can achieve when they apply their ingenuity to biochemistry, literature, mathematics. If you take faith seriously, those things should inspire within us not a sense of suspicion because they're not explicitly theological or whatever, or they're secular, but a sense of overwhelming awe. But it's important to remember that we shouldn't stop at just awe. If we want the sum total of the human capacity for creation to mean something in the long term, we need to imbue it with grand purpose. And the way we do that is approaching the world the way someone like Warren does. Of course, each of us in a way that is authentic to who we are and the community and the tradition we represent, I'll do it differently than someone like Warren does and a third person will do it differently still. But if we collectively bring our divine image to bear upon the creative process, it'll create a world that is not only lovely, flourishing, and beautiful, but virtuous and goodly as well. Anyway, this is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul